Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in 2018. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Bridge of Clay is the new sweeping family saga from Marcus Zuzak, author of the international bestseller The Book Thief, which swept the world and was made into a movie. Bridge of Clay is the story of five brothers who bring each other up in a world run by their own rules. As the Dunbar boys love and fight and learn to reckon with the adult world, they discover the moving secret behind their father's disappearance. At the center of the Dunbar family is Clay, a boy who will build a bridge for his family, for his past, for his greatness, for his sins, for a miracle. The question is, how far is Clay willing to go and how much can he overcome? Marcus Uzak is author, in addition to the book Thief, of I Am the Messenger, which is an L.A. Times Book Award finalist and Prince Award Honor book. The book Thief was named one of the best books of 2006 by many publications, received glowing reviews from many other publications. Marcus Uzak lives in Sydney, Australia, with his wife and children, and he is launching his U.S. book tour. And Marcus Uzak, welcome to the program. Are, are you there, Mr. Uzak? Uh, can you hear me now? Uh, uh, yes, yes, I can. Uh, thank you so much for having me on the show. <laughs> Sorry uh, for the delay. There. Oh no, our 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 uh, our fault there. Sorry about that. Um, so launching the U.S. book tour, I guess uh, three weeks in the U.S., then in the U.K., and then back to Australia. This is you've written uh, another review I read. This is the fun part. Uh, writing is hard. <laughs> uh, meeting the readers is good part. Yeah, it doesn't actually feel like work. You know, I think you spend so much time alone as a writer that, you know, then you get, especially if it takes 13 years to finish a book and then you get unleashed on the world and you sort of say, all right, this doesn't really feel like work. They're putting me on a plane and uh, you'd be silly to complain about that kind of thing. I know other writers who would kill for these sort of opportunities. So um, I'm really looking forward to it and uh, I'm really looking forward to coming to Utah as well. Uh, so uh, I think you've said that you didn't expect the book thief to be a hit. Uh, it became a huge hit. Uh, you, you're just hoping to, to to get it out there. What what did you think when it hit so big? Well, I was shocked. <laughs> you know, because I imagined people. Yeah, you know, I, I I thought on the off chance while I was writing it and it was getting bigger and bigger. I I, I did have those sort of dreams where I, I imagined someone actually reading it and then re- trying to recommend it to their friends and the friend says well what's the book about and uh, and you have to say well it's set in nazi germany it's narrated by death nearly everyone dies oh and it's 560 pages long you'll love it yeah. you know so i i just thought people wouldn't wouldn't be interested or they'd be turned off or scared of reading it and uh, you know and it turned out to be the exact opposite and i guess that's not only the beauty of writing on writing books it's the the beauty of being alive is that we're always surprised by things so um you know even now 13 years later it's uh, or 12 years later it's still a shock to me that that book did so well and you know when you and it's kind of funny you know it's narrated by death everybody dies in the book uh, you'll love it um why why do you think it hit i don't know i mean the only thing that i can think of is, uh, I mean, I think there are a lot of factors that have to come together. And I think that for me, there was just something about that. It, it almost it almost got touched by a little bit of magic, that book. And it's just had this magical ride where every time you thought it was going to start waning, something new would happen. And, uh, you know, whether it's a film being made or, they, or there's a play somewhere, 
it, it just sort of was, was a book that somehow had the legs. And uh, But for me, it was just one of those things where I'd written four books before The Book Thief that really, really meant something to me. And But then when I finished The Book Thief, I worked out, you know, probably a couple of months later, things always hit you later on, but I, I realised that I, I hadn't written a book that meant something to me. I'd written a book that meant everything to me. And maybe that's what people pick up on. And, uh, and I know that's... You know, I, it's what made writing the new book so hard as well. I thought, all right, now I only want to write books that mean everything to me. Uh, let's talk about that. Thirteen years um, in in the writing. Um, uh, I want to quote you here. Every book we write means something to us, but sometimes it comes to mean everything. And Bridge of Clay for me was that latter type, the book you have to fight for, but it's all the more rewarding. Mm-hmm. What, what were the problems with uh, with with trying oh, to you know. wrestle that into shape? Uh, you know, just general failure every day for a good decade, <laughs> and uh, and that, but that's that's what makes it worth it. And uh, I just had this. I think I I had a problem. I think after the book thief, where I felt like I'd written above myself, and uh, and I, and I realised I wanted to to do that all the time as well. And I think you're putting a lot of pressure on yourself then. And and I always felt that Bridge of Clay was my best idea. I got the idea when I was 19 or 20 years old and uh, just had this idea for a boy who was building a bridge and he wanted the bridge to be perfect. He wanted it, He wanted to make one great thing. And interestingly enough, one, one of the first things I... Well, the first three things I think of usually when I'm writing a book is the beginning, the end, and the title. And the title of that idea was originally Clayton's Bridge. And it's just often the littlest things. Like, it's the little... It's the little um, coincidences that often are your most important moments or ideas. And the fact that his name was Clayton allowed me to then take a next step to call it, no, it's not Clayton's Bridge, Bridge of Clay. And as soon as I thought of that idea for the title, I immediately saw a whole new depth of meaning in the story in that clay as a material can be moulded into anything, but it needs fire to set it. And I then saw a boy walking across the top of a bridge on a flooded river and the sun's coming up in the water. And I was always I was always reaching or heading towards that moment in the book. But of course, then you start writing and you go, oh, no, that's not it either. It, it, again, then your best idea is left or right or a little forward or behind the idea you thought the idea was. So all of those things are in your mind and you're writing towards that and you know a year goes by and you're still working on the first page and I think I became too obsessed with perfection in the actual writing and I wanted everything to be perfect straight away and then finally you realize the book only has to be perfect once you know and it's not going to be perfect at all and uh, I thought it only has to be right once and that's when it goes to print so um but it took me a long time to 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 figure that out and you learn you relearn and you remake all your mistakes on every book but um this time around i think i went a little too far on on trying to make every single thing right all the time you said something interesting um another piece i was reading you said you felt like you were trying to make it too easy for the reader you're trying to make it easier for the reader and then you then then you had a realization that uh, no maybe that's not the goal yeah, I think I look at my favorite 
books and novels and and uh, and often you know they're, they're entire worlds and uh, and and I, I realized in the end that that's what I was trying to do I didn't want to write a book that you just pick up and easily read and then finish and then get on to your next book uh, I had not higher hopes but harder hopes for, for for what I was trying to do I wanted to write a book that that really was a world and meant the world and that, that there were characters in it that would, would really resonate. And uh, and I think, you know, I, I often, as I said, my favourite books are, are that kind of book. And, and I thought there was a time about halfway through where I was writing chapters that I was trying to make them shorter. I was trying to say that, you know, help the reader and say, oh, let's make this shorter and this book's getting too big. And then I would reread the chapters, and they'd be dead. You know, they'd be they they read more like chapter outlines than chapters themselves. And uh, and it was around that time. That was around 2015. I'd been working on the book for close to 10 years, and and uh, you know, my wife actually said to me, "You you've got a week to get this back on track, uh, <laughs> or else you know I'm going to make you quit the book." And because uh, you're obviously you know, I think she she'd suffered through a fair bit of of it with me. So, um, and that was a real turning point. And uh, so, I think sometimes you need to know when to step away. But as I said, you know, harder hopes rather than easier hopes for for both the reader and myself. And and hopefully, you know, sometimes the work you put into a book, the rewards are all the more greater at the end. And uh, you know, and hopefully that's the case with this one. So uh, that's extraordinary, an intervention from your wife. Uh, so, yeah. so you you did step away, I guess, and but but uh, when you came back, what what was different? Well, it's funny. I um, I you know, it's always a a more complicated story than we think. But so I quit the. I actually quit, had to. Well, I quit this book twice. And when you think that was once was in two thousand fifteen. And once was in 2016. The first time I, I quit for less than 24 hours, <laughs> and uh, I just I, I thought no, there was a deadline coming up. I knew I couldn't make it, and I just said, I think this is it. I don't think I can go any further with this book because you're talking about thousands, thousands of files on my computer, you know, just different versions of the first chapter, different versions of the first page. Because I always come back to the beginning all the time. And you don't realize at the time how much success you've had because all you're doing is looking at the failures you've had with the book. And um, and so the first time I just quit and I actually I said, that's it. I just can't work on this book anymore. I need to start something new. And then I went for a surf and then I, I came back and I looked at some of my you know favorite writers' books and recent books that some of them had written and I was reading those and I just thought, you know, come on, you know, get yourself together. And so I came up with a an entirely new prologue for the book and, and that set me alight again. But then a year later, I was just in the same place. And and it was really, it was the best thing that happened to me, her giving me that week, because nothing changed in that week. It was how I'd always been doing things. I wasn't letting anyone help me. And uh, so for a month, I or more than a month, I didn't work on the book. And uh, and and that was even worse. Like you know, that was that was like, you know, I you know, she said to me, just work on 
something else, you know, and so I started a side project about reading the sort of books that were going to get me back on track and do that for three months and um, and kind of make that my job. And, you know, but I was, you know, a month into that and I realised, God, before I was, I was writing for the world championship of myself, you know, and now I'm writing this and this almost feels certainly not meaningless, but it, it was exactly what it, would be called it was a side project and uh, and I knew that I wanted this and what that allowed me to do is you know I actually finally started letting people help me and the first person to help me was her because we went away for a weekend and we just read through everything I had to see if there was a book there and three quarters of it was written and we got through we got through those you know 350 pages in and, you know, we did the first 250 in one day and uh, I kind of knew, I, I said, there's a book here. There's definitely a book here. And that's what made all the difference. And then I, I let my editors in to sort of help me more. And, uh, you know, by the end of the year, the book was, was pretty much written and uh, I, I finished it. You know, there was one deadline I still remember was December 19. And on December 18, I started work at 6.30 in the morning and I finished work at 7.30 the next morning. Mm. And it wasn't, still wasn't finished. I still didn't deliver the last quarter of the book, but there were treatments and everything was written. And, uh, you know, so I had places to go then. And, and I just used a new criteria, which was, is this part alive or is it dead? And if it's dead, get rid of it or get it to live in a hurry. So I just simplified things and, uh, you know, and just sort of said to myself, you know, when I think we all do this at times where we work really hard at working really hard and, uh, and then you, you, there comes a point where you just say, you know, forget all that, just really get your hands dirty, do the work and stop being so precious. And, mm -hmm. and that's how I ended up finishing the book. Yeah, I think that that's well said. I think sometimes we do. We work really hard at working really hard when what we need to do is, is uh, you know, do the thing. Do it or don't do it, right? Yeah, and also just remember that I think in my case what was really important was just to remember that there's, this is what you love. And there's a great joy in, in what was going on as well. And all those years of struggling with this book too – there's joy in that as well, and uh, and and part of writing is the struggle. And you know, if it was easy, everyone would do it. And uh, if it was easy, it wouldn't be worth anything. And uh, and so I, I started to look upon it more like that. It was. It's not a burden. It's a privilege. And uh, and I've always loved writing, and I'm happiest when I am writing, even when I'm miserable. <laughs> you know. So I think that's all just a part of it. And and I think understanding that is, is the most important thing and and that always gives you somewhere to go each day and and you want to wake up feeling like the book is near you and uh, you know the other way of putting it is to say you can worry today or you can really work and uh, and the more work days you have the better the more worrying the more days of worry only really set you back but I guess you need to have them as well um, because we don't you know, we don't live our lives in a way that's easy all the time. Mm. And uh, and that's kind of what makes everything worth it. Let's take a break. When we come back, more with Marcus Zuzak. His new book out, uh, Bridge of Clay, 
Uh, much anticipated. Uh, Marcus Zuzak is author of The Book Thief, international bestseller, made into a movie. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about The Book Thief and, of course, uh, Bridge of Clay, get into some of the characters. Marcus Zuzak, do you have your book with you? Uh, yes, I do. Okay. Uh, maybe you could, um, you know, choose a, a, a short passage or, or two of you read. I'd like to get a sample of the book for the listeners. Um, and uh, much more following this break. Support for Utah Public Radio comes from listeners like you and Utah State University Extension. The U.S. Economic Development Administration recently awarded a $1.1 million grant to USU Extension's remote online initiative, extension.usu.edu slash remote work certificate. Support also comes from Salt Lake City Weekly, a Utah news source since 1984, covering music, dining, nightlife, and more in Salt Lake City and beyond. Available weekly at 1,800 locations across the Wasatch Front or online at cityweekly.net. Special Agent Joel Wallace led the investigation into the death of 17-year-old football star Billy Joe Johnson. I will always remember that case. What we shared with him makes him question how the case turned out. If somebody had told me that, and when they said, hey, we need to reopen this case, we need to look at this. On the next Reveal. Saturday at noon on Utah Public Radio. Hello, listeners. I'm Shireen Gorbani, Salt Lake County Councilwoman. Join us for both sides of the aisle. This is a weekly debate over politics, policy, and big issues facing the state of Utah, featuring voices on the right, in the center, and on the left. That's me. Both Sides of the Aisle attempts to help you understand the important questions facing the residents of this state. We prove that you can still put Republicans and Democrats in a small room and have meaningful dialogue. Thursday mornings at 10 a.m. on Utah Public Radio. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in 2018. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. My guest for the hour today is Marcus Zuzak author previously of uh, several books, including The Book Thief, which was an international bestseller who made into a movie, the new book, Bridge of Clay. It is uh, out, and uh, Marcus Uzak is on his U.S. Uh, tour. Uh, he lives in uh, Sydney, Australia. Um, and uh, Bridge of Clay is the story of five brothers who bring each other up in a world run by their own rules. As the Dunbar boys love and fight and learn to reckon with the adult world, they discover the moving secret behind their father's uh, disappearance. Marcus Uzak, uh, s- some very touching characters here. The central character, uh, Clay, of course. I wonder if you could tell us about uh, Clay and uh, the other brothers. Interesting that the narrator is Matthew, another brother, who uh, digs up a buried typewriter and begins typing the story. Yeah, um, Clay's just this character who um, Matthew describes as the best of the brothers, and uh, he's the one who loved the the parents, uh, the the stories of their parents growing up the most. And I think he's the one he says that he he took everything on his shoulder, and Clay's the one who really risks everything in a way, everything he loves to save it, and he ends up leaving his four other brothers to go and build a bridge with their with their father who left them years earlier and uh and and just the idea of it's funny when i told you earlier about about writing a new prologue and uh or you know just coming up with something new uh when i was really struggling with the book and when i'd actually quit the book that 
um, Matthew goes out and digs up a typewriter. That was never the beginning. For you know, for the first five or six years working on the book, or probably yeah, about that time, that didn't happen. He was sitting on the roof telling the story. And uh, but then I just when I started writing again, I just thought do something fun. You know, do something or do something that, that you, is going to excite you. And instead of him sitting on the roof, I had him, which was a very exterior idea. It was always from the outside looking in. And I thought, let's bring him into the house. Let's bring him into the kitchen. And let's, not, let's have him tell us a great story. And I thought, what if he goes out into this country town where their dad grew up and they know because Clay's been told the story that there was once a time where their father... Uh, when he was a teenager, his dog was killed by a snake, but they, they basically fought each other. When He came home from school and he found the dog and the king brown snake next to each other and he buried them together. And then when his mum died, he buried the typewriter out there because it just seemed fitting. And, uh, and it's Matthew who goes out, digs it up and starts writing the story about the brother that, you know, they, they all say, you know, everything happened to him and everything changed because of him. We were all of us changed through him. And so I think Matthew and Clay share a particularly special bond, and uh, Matthew being the really responsible brother, and then you have Rory, who's the really rough brother. They call him the human ball and chain. Henry's the money-making brother, and Tommy is the youngest and the pet collector, who has five pets, ranging from a mule to a pigeon, a dog, a cat, and uh, a goldfish, all with unusual names. The mule is named Achilles, and there's a reason for that. There's a reason for pretty much every single thing in this book, but those five brothers just sort of, you know, they were my pals for the last decade or so, so it's, uh, I kind of miss them sometimes. Mm. Yeah, that's a, it's a phenomenon, isn't it? You, you, you sort of send them out into the world. Um, uh, I wonder, is there a passage you could read us? Yeah, sure. I mean, it probably comes on the back of that. I wasn't sure if I should just read the beginning uh, or I should read about um, Matthew's summing up of Clay when he was born and the family was all still together. So we still have Penelope and Michael, their parents, and um, and this is how Matthew talks about the, the early part of their lives. Once in the tide of Dunbar Pass, there were five brothers, but the fourth of us was the best of us, and a boy of many traits. How did Clay become Clay anyway? In the beginning, there was all of us, each our own small part to tell the whole, and our father had helped every birth. He was first to be handed to hold us. As Penelope liked to tell it, he'd be standing there, acutely aware, and he'd cry at the bedside, beaming. He never flinched at the slop or the burnt-looking bits as the room began to spin. For Penelope, that was everything. When it was over, she'd succumbed to dizziness. Her heartbeat leapt in her lips. It was funny, they liked to tell us how when we were born, we all had something they loved. Me, it was my feet, the newborn crinkly feet. Rory, it was his punched-up nose when he first came out and the noises he made in his sleep. Something like a world title fight, but at least they knew he was alive. Henry had ears like paper. Tommy was always sneezing. And of course, there was Clay between us, the boy who came out smiling. As the story went, when Penny was in labour with Clay, they left Henry, Rory and me with Mrs Chilman, 
On the drive to the hospital, they nearly pulled over. Clay was coming quickly. As Penny would later tell him, the world had wanted him badly. But what she didn't do was ask why. Was it to hurt, to humiliate, or to love and make great? Even now, it's hard to decide. So that's how Matthew describes Clay um, when he was born and uh, I thought I'd stop there I wasn't sure how long I should mm-hmm. go on but no, that, that felt like the right place to stop yeah that was uh, that was excellent by the way parenthetically you've talked about um, uh, being the narrator for the audiobook of uh, mm-hmm. and and that that was that was an interesting uh, instructive experience for you yeah it's uh, it was one of those things where normally it's not the sort of thing that I would do and uh, you know it's really uh, but the really nice thing to talk about here is that I've, I've always considered myself a really terrible re- reader of my own writing. And uh, I remember b- doing a reading, oh gosh, this goes back uh, a decade and a half ago when I did a reading at a country library in Australia and a lady came up to me afterwards and said, hey, I, I really like your books, but your, your reading is atrocious. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I was a bit reticent Mind you, there were. I remember that particular reading. There was a kid at my feet playing with one of these noise box things. So it was, it was a pretty challenging afternoon, but um, or evening. But it was one of those things where I read through the books, and as I said earlier, that I I kind of let people in this time, and so I did do some read-throughs uh, of the book with with uh, with colleagues this time around and I would read it in two days and I would read it pretty much, I knew the book so well without making a single mistake and then when it was suggested to me that I should read the book, I think some people were worried because of how much, how meticulous I am with every comma, every word that I would be unhappy with with the result. Uh, or, you know, with the book and that I'd want to change things. But it's an interesting thing when you do then read it and you know there's no chance of changing anything, that changes your perspective too. And you're concentrating, in my case especially, I was really concentrating on slowing down um, because you, 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 you slowly understand that, or you very quickly understand actually because you're told in no uncertain terms, that you've got to slow down because people... Are listening to it they don't have it in front of them and so you've got to let them actually drink the words in a little bit and so they can picture things clearly and you're not just running through and people tune out and one of the, the biggest skills I learned was that when you really feel like people might be waning or their attention might be waning it's actually better to slow down than it is to speed up hmm. and uh, because then you're really reinforcing what's happening and so for me I think it was more just a a point where it was a really nice test because I thought, well, I hope I don't read this and feel embarrassed and uh, about the writing. And at, at no point did I feel embarrassed. And that's a testament to to my editors as well, that we, we worked really hard on just shaving all the things off this book that weren't quite right or that went a bit too far. And uh, so I, I was happy in the end with the writing. And... Uh, you know, and it was such a great experience to, because a, a writer always works alone, and to be in a studio in Sydney, I'd leave the house every day. I wasn't sitting in my, <laughs> working amongst my own pigsty, uh, and as the guys there said, well, no, you're just working amongst our pigsty, and I, I said, well, it's a totally, you know, it's such a pleasure to do that, to leave for work every day, um, and you're not tempted to do the dishes or 
put washing on and things like that. And it was just a task that I loved, and uh, you know, and, and I haven't heard it yet. So um, hopefully the result is is good as well. But it felt really nice to do it. If you just joined us, we're talking with Marcus Uzak, author previously of the book Thief, which of course was an international hit, made into a movie. The new book is Bridge of Clay. Marcus Uzak, it's always um, tempting to try to read autobiography. Uh, and, and sometimes that you know it's it, it's not true at all. I wonder. So, you you have said the book thief. Um, part of that came out of stories that your parents would mm-hmm. uh, would uh, tell. They're from I think what Austria and Germany. Yeah. Um, so I wonder if that's true. And uh, and then I wanted maybe any autobiographical bits in uh, in the book thief uh, for or in in the new book uh, the Bridge of Clay. I was reading a article you wrote for the Sydney Morning Herald on the uh, when when the movie The Book Thief uh, came out. Yeah. And you talk about your your brother. But anyway, so yeah. so the so the book thief and your parents. Yeah. Well. The- it's interesting with, with the book thief people often ask me okay so it's set in nazi germany you must have done a whole lot of research and i definitely did but my answer is usually you know that the research i did for that book was actually in my childhood and uh, and you think what sort of sense does that make you grew up in sydney warm humid summers and uh, and you know playing cricket in the and, and rugby in the backyard that doesn't seem to have much to do with nazi germany but because of the stories my mum and dad told me from being children at that time, and they were great. I was so lucky because, I mean, I feel spoiled as the youngest of four children, but not in the way that, you know, every every spoiled child tells you that, that they weren't spoiled in the way that you think they would be. And in my case, it was because I got to spend the most, you know, I, I got to spend the most mean uh, most amount of time with my parents at a time that was meaningful in in the sense that I didn't get my parents full attention when I was you know anywhere between you know a newborn up to you know five or six years old but I got it as a teenager and I loved spending time with my parents and they'd tell these great stories and they were great storytellers about that time and so I, it was like scratching something open in my mind and reaching in and pulling that world out. And uh, and so, yeah, there were moments, you know, and, and things in that book that happened to my parents, but then you distill it or you, you look at it and you go, you know, it's probably only 20% of the book. And even then, you're changing things within those 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 scenes and moments because you're a writer of fiction and you've written a certain character a certain way and the true story doesn't actually fit with that. And so you're always, um, you know, I, I guess you're always pressing into it and taking things off it and just changing things so that it suits the actual novel. And sometimes that something can be staring you in the face, for, you know, for several drafts before you say, oh, actually, it should be like this. And that's because you're, cre- you're creating a whole different world from those true stories that you were told. Um, as far as Bridge of Clay goes, it's often just the little things. And, you know, one of the real joys of, of writing the book was it, is just when something does happen and uh, in your own life and, and it's just a little vignette in the book. And, uh, you know, one of those, one of my favourite moments is in that book. And, and this is actually the perfect illustration of how a real moment then works in a in a work of fiction is that 
uh, I was on holiday with my family and my son would have been four years old, I think. And he, and I just, you know, it's hot. And I just took, and I don't know why I was doing this because my car has always got dog hair and sand and it's useless trying to clean it up really. But I just took my T-shirt off and and just brushed some sand out of my car and my son came around the corner and he saw me without my T-shirt on and he just looked at me and you know how little kids just say the most amazing things sometimes that you would never say um, and you only get it for that little window when they're really little and he looked at me and he said, hey, hey, Dad, what, what are you doing here in just your nipples? And it was such a hilarious thing and other people around laughed at that and uh, and I thought, I didn't think consciously, oh, I'm going to put that in the book. But then there came a moment where there were the five brothers in Bridge of Clay sitting at the table, their parents are still with them, and one of the brothers spills all his dinner down the front of his shirt. And the mum, Penelope, finally, she just says, right, that's it. Just take your T-shirt off and uh, you, you're going to eat dinner without wearing a shirt at all. That's just the safest thing. And uh, and then when the other boys laugh, their dad says, oh, you think that's funny? You know, and then they all have to do it. And then the next night, the dad, uh, Michael, says, he decides, all right, if I'm making you do it, I'm going to do it as well. And and it just builds to a point where then there's a joke about whether their mum should do it. And, and it's just one of those moments that where a real-life time, one sentence in real life can turn into... Um, a paragraph that you love in a book. And so I think it's those little things that are true in the book, but then sometimes it's just a feeling that runs through the whole book. And, you know, I think maybe as the youngest of four children, I, I was always frustrated. I was often frustrated as a kid because, you know, when, when my brother and sisters were playing Monopoly, I was always told, oh, no, no, you won't understand. Too, you're too young. I was too young for everything all the time. And I think whether or not I was going to be ambitious anyway, but I, I, I think I became quite ambitious because of that, because I thought one day I'm going to show everyone. And And I think Clay, in a way, is that kind of, not necessarily his motivation to show everyone, but I think he wants to, he, he, in his case, he wants to atone for what he feels are, are things that he's gotten wrong to make this one beautiful, perfect thing, which is the bridge he then goes and builds with their father after he's left them. And I think that's how I've probably felt about this book. I wanted to make one beautiful, perfect thing. But what you realise when you're in the midst of it is that you're not going to be great. You can't make something truly great. You can't make something truly perfect. The only greatness that is involved in that scenario is the fact that you do it anyway, hmm. knowing that you're going to fall short, but you've got to give it, you know, you've got to try anyway. And, uh, and that's what Clay is doing the whole time. So I think, yeah, you're blending fact and fiction all the time and you're blending the feel of, of a character as well and the feeling that's inside you. And in that sense, you know, there, there's always just a touch of autobiography in anything you write. When uh, Clay and his father are building the bridge um, and talking about, uh, you know, you, it's not going to be perfect, but you but you need to make the attempt, right? Um, mm -hmm. They they compare their work, the, the bridge, to Michelangelo. And um, I think they say this: this is not going to be the David, right? 
Yeah, well, Michael Dunbar, Clay's father, grew up loving Michelangelo, and there was a sort of there's this idea that their parents they came from totally they're almost total opposites of each other uh, in a really symmetrical way, where Michael Dunbar was the only son of a single mother, and Penelope um, Penny Dunbar was the daughter of a, a single father. And uh, and one of them grew up playing the piano and hearing stories uh, and a father who read the Iliad and the Odyssey to her and the other one had a love of of great artworks, which is Michelangelo in the end, and um, or, or that built to Michelangelo and and so he grew up loving and even and imitating and drawing Michelangelo sketches and things like that. And so, and he became obsessed with a book called The Quarryman, which was a, about the life and times of of Michelangelo. Which is also its subtitle was, and and it's, of course it's a fictitious book, but it, the subtitle is um, An Infinite Quarry of Greatness. And uh, and so they they're working on this bridge, and they and they and they do start to talk about the the Statue of David. And what I've always loved about the Statue of David is that if you go and see it, and I was lucky, I did research for this book, and it's when you never complain about your job. I went in January of 2008, I went to to Rome and to Florence, and I also went to Avignon in France to go and see the Pont de Garde bridge built by the Romans, and or the aqueduct built by the Romans. And, uh, and you know, to stand in front of the Statue of David in Florence in January when there are no tourists there, or they weren't that year anyway, and uh, and you get to stand in front of it on your own uh, for an hour or however long you want, really, and uh, at, towards closing at the, at the Academia Museum. But what is even better is that on the way to the David, there are some unfinished Michelangelo sculptures known as the prisoners or the slaves, and they're all still twisting their way out of the marble and they'll be like that forever, and and so for me, that's it's almost the perfect analogy of what we're always trying to do. I think we always have this idea that we want to we want to do beautiful things, we want to do great things, but we're still we're, we're still struggling our way towards that, and uh, and that's what their bridge came to symbolise. That you know they actually say it where Michael says to Clay. You know, it'd be great to create something like the David one day. And Clay says to him that we live the lives of the slaves. And rather than that being something terribly sad, I think it's it, it's actually an affirmation that it's okay. It's okay to not be perfect. It's okay to be in that struggle because there's something beautiful about that. And me personally, I actually prefer the statues of the slaves than I... I than the David. I just find more beauty in them and just a a beautiful complexity, which I think is a better symbol for how we all are and how we all live. I wonder if you could follow up on that. What, why do you prefer the slaves to the David? It's, it's the, because they're still in the struggle. It's, it's incomplete. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, to me, I think they're still moving, you know, and, uh, you, you, there's, there's a, there's just such a, to me, there's a real life force in them. 
that. And I'm not, you know, I'm certainly not going to criticize <laughs> the statue of David because it's like he's like a prince, as described in the book. You know, he's a he's the prince, the perfection gleaming up ahead. But um, but I, I think you know, there, there's 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 more a sense of motion in in the slaves, and there's more, you know, to me that I just find more heart in the in in those ones, and uh, and I like the idea of the possibility. And uh, because, you know, we're always becoming. And, uh, and I feel like that's what those, those sculptures are doing. They're still, they're caught, they're frozen in that moment of, you know, in the period of becoming that, um, that I feel is, is such a, an important thing. I mean, and in terms of this book, I mean, I, I often, my, I'll often joke to people, well, it's not even really a joke, but I often say, you know, there'll be 20% improvement in this book until the day I die. <laughs> uh, but, um, but there's a point where you have to say, right, I have to let it go now. I have to let it be in the world. And you can make something more perfect, but that doesn't mean you're making it more right. And uh, I think you realise at some point, if you keep going, you're actually going to hurt it more than you're going to help it. So you have to be okay with its imperfections because, you know, maybe that's how you write your next book, to atone for the sins of the last one. <laughs> um, we're talking with Marcus Zuzak, author of the book Thief, and now Bridge of Clay. Let's take another break. When we come back, Marcus Zuzak, could you uh, read another passage uh, for us? Uh, sure. From the book. So uh, more with Marcus Zuzak following this break. Support for Utah Public Radio comes from our members and Science Unwrapped and USU's College of Science, presenting an Incoviad Eant Sleuth, lifting viral fingerprints from water and air by USU biological engineer Keith Roper, Friday, November 12th at 7 p.m. in the Echo Science Learning Center Auditorium and online via AggieCast at usu.edu slash unwrapped. On the next Living on Earth... To save the carbon-rich rainforests of Borneo, first heal the people. We can't survive if some people are suffering because of a long history of colonialism. Resources need to flow back, and these communities know what the solutions are. I am Bobby Bascom, Healthcare for the Guardians of the Trees, next time on Living on Earth from PRX. Tomorrow morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. They hustled him out of the door, saying, One sound and you're a dead man. Detective Hercule Poirot receives an urgent letter. Dear sir, on account of a secret I possess, I am in fear of my life. The Murder on the Links by Agatha Christie. Starring Alfred Molina as Hercule Poirot. Always remember the little gray cells. Next time on L.A. Theatre Works. Tune in Friday night at 9 here on UPR. Are you looking for a way to make your nonprofit organization more visible to our statewide community? Well, we'd love to support your events on our UPR community calendar. Head to upr.org, click on the community calendar tab, and there you can find the submission link. We highlight events including workshops, theater, art shows, dances, lectures, virtual events, and more. Again, you can just go to the community calendar tab on upr.org to submit your event. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in 2018. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Uh, Bridge of Clay is the new uh, family saga for Marcus Zuzak, author of the international bestseller The Book Thief. 
Bridge of Clay is the story of five brothers who bring each other up in a world run by their own rules. As the Dunbar boys love and fight and learn to reckon with the adult world, they discover the moving secret behind their father's disappearance. Uh, so, Marcus Uzak, uh, there was something struck me in this piece you wrote uh, for the paper in uh, Sydney there. This is in 2014. Uh, the film uh, at that point was coming out, uh, The Book Thief. And um, let me pull this up. You say, now on the eve, of the eve of the film's release here at home, many things have changed. I couldn't write that book now even if I wanted to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... Um, yeah, it's- funny i've forgotten i'd written that <laughs> um and yeah probably i think i was so in in the head of bridge of clay by then that you know the book they felt a very long time ago and uh, it feels even longer ago now and it's a it's a little bit i it's easier even when i think of my very first books that were published um and uh and you, you just realize you're not the same person anymore and even writing bridge of clay a book that really, you know, took from to the end of 2005 up till now to, to finish, you realise sometimes that you're a different person towards the end of writing a book than you were at the beginning. And uh, and you ask yourself, okay, is this consistent all the way through as a book? So, yeah, we're changing all the time. And, uh, you know, and I definitely couldn't write The Book Thief now. And, you know, and I, t- I can t- obviously tell you one thing, and that is that I don't want to write Bridge of Clay again mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> in a hurry. So um, although, you know, I think it's easy to look back and say, oh, that was actually a really good time when, you know, it didn't feel like that at the time you were doing it. But, um, you know, I love writing and uh, I love, you know, and I love books and I love reading and I, I love being able to to imagine and and I just love stories. And uh, and stories do change us, and we're not the same when we finish them than when we started. And and, and maybe that's at the heart of of what I said about you know not being able to to write, you know, wouldn't being not being able to write the book Thief again or Bridge of Clay again. Now I think you're always wanting to move forward and uh, and see what the next challenge is. Before I have you read another passage from Bridge of Clay, I'm interested. Um, I think our audience will be interested. What did you think of the? Of the film, I'll just preface that uh, by, by saying when you signed the film rights, your you know your friends gave you some good advice, which was, well, the the studio might sign it, but the film may never get made. And so, uh, but it did get made. <laughs> what mm. what did you think of the film? Uh, it's all. It is always a little bit like it's a little bit like, uh, and I think I might have even said it in that article if I was referring to my brother, which is, um, you know, people people will say. Um, oh, gee, you and your brother, they, you look exactly the same. I, uh, you look so much alike. And you go, you look at your brother and you look at yourself, and you're like, I don't look like him. <laughs> Surely, you know, things can't be that bad. And um, I mean, and, you know, my, even my brother would laugh at me saying that. But uh, it is, it's, it's a little bit, it's certainly strange. It's, you, you've let something go, you've given it to somebody else, and then you've got to let them do what they're going to do with it creatively and uh, you know and the worst thing you can do to to a creative person is say right I'm I'm going to give you this project here here this is you know go and make it the best you can do do what may be really creative with it but I want you to do this 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 on and don't forget this as well Uh, I don't think you're going to get a good result and so I you know the other advice I got was that if they do make it you've got to make a decision on how hands-on you want to be 
with the film project and uh and in in my case you know I was writing bridge of clay and and I consider screenplay writing as as a a very different animal different art form and so I handed it over and I thought okay let's see what you do with it and I think um it's it's really funny well not funny but you've just got to you got to think of it as your book but it's not your movie it's their movie and uh you know and and so when you you're old football coach comes up to you in the street and says oh hey marcus i saw you i saw your movie you know you don't say well technically it's not my movie you know I, you know it's my book you you just say oh thanks bill <laughs> and uh and and you move on but um you know so it's been a while since I, i've seen the film and and uh and you know it is it's it's one of those strange things it is a bit like looking at a photo of yourself and saying quite sure if that's actually me and uh, you know and there were some beautiful things and some things that I obviously would have done differently um, if I was involved but you know as I said it's they're two totally different things in a lot of way they've just got the same template and uh, you know so and it was just a great adventure really and uh, and so you know we'll see if any of that happens again and I just don't ever I I never expect anything I Mm -hmm. You know, I, I just keep my head down and do the work, and, and you see what comes down the line. Well, we just have uh, two or three minutes left. I'd love to hear another passage from uh, Bridge of Clay. Mm-hmm. I thought what I might do is we, we had a little bit of the the brother brotherly, uh, the idea of the five boys being born, but uh, uh, one of the, the seminal parts of the book is going into the backstory of the boys' parents and uh, and... Um, they wouldn't exist if, obviously, I, I love the idea that we all have these backgrounds and things that happened before we were born that led to the actual miraculous thing that is our own existence. And so this is the story, a little bit of the story of their mum, Penelope, and how she came to Australia. And so this is the first chapter of part two, and it's called The Mistake Maker. Once in the tide of Dunbar Pass, there was a many named woman and what a woman she was. First, the name she was born with, Penelope Leshushko, then the one christened at her piano, the mistake maker. In transit, they called her the birthday girl. Her self-proclaimed nickname was the broken-nosed bride. And last, the name she died with, Penny Dunbar. Quite fittingly, she'd travelled from a place that was best described by a phrase in the books she was raised on. She came from a watery wilderness. Many years ago, and like so many before her, she arrived with a suitcase and a scrunched-up stare. She was astounded by the mauling light here. This city, it was so hot and wide and white. The sun was some sort of barbarian, a Viking in the sky. It plundered, it pillaged, it got its hands on everything, from the tallest stick of concrete to the smallest cap in the water. In her former country... In the eastern block, the sun had mostly been a toy, a gizmo. There, in that far-off land, it was cloud and rain, ice and snow that wore the pants. Not that funny little yellow thing that showed its face every now and again. Its warmer days were rationed. Even on the boniest, barren afternoons, there was a chance of moisture, drizzle, wet feet. It was communist Europe at its slow descending peak. 
In a lot of ways, it defined her escaping alone, or more to the point, lonely. She would never forget landing here in sheer terror. From the air in a circling plane, the city looked at the mercy of its own brand of water, the salty kind, but on the ground, it didn't take long to feel the full force of its true oppressor. Her face was dappled immediately with sweat. Outside, she stood with a flock, a herd, no, a rabble of equally shocked and sticky people. After a long wait, the lot of them were rounded up. They were corralled into a sort of indoor tarmac. The light globes were all fluorescent. The air was floor-to-ceiling heat. Name? Nothing. Passport? Shepfrasa? Oh, Jesus. The man in uniform stood on his toes and looked above the heads and hordes of new immigrants. What a mob of hot and sorry faces. He found the man he wanted. Hey, George. Bilski. I've got one here for you. We'll but have... now the woman, who was, who was nearly 21 but appeared 16, gripped him firmly in the face. She held her grey-coloured booklet as if to strangle its edges of air. Passport. We'll have to uh, we'll have to end it there. Out of uh, out of perfect. time. Thank uh, you. Good. Um, so, Marcus Zuzak, uh, author of the book Thief Now, Bridge of Clay, and Marcus Zuzak, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we'll hear some unexpected cover versions of well-known songs, including a Dylan classic with a reggae twist and a Beatles song sung in Portuguese. I'm Dan Storper. And I'm Rosalie Howarth. Join us for World Covers, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Thursday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide member-supported service of Utah State University, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.